Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, a podcast about God, the devil, and everything in between. Klaus Yoder here doing a unforeseen bonus episode on Moby Dick. Why Moby Dick, you ask? Well, pure serendipity, I would say. It works out really well because we just did the Gregory the Great episode and Gregory's main work that we discussed was on the book of Job. And the book of Job has some fantastic monsters, like we said last time, and one of those is the Leviathan. And of course, the author of Moby Dick, Herman Melville, is really interested in drawing out all of these parallels between the biblical monster of the Leviathan and the white whale chased by crazy, brilliant, satanic Captain Ahab. So yeah, I hope everyone is doing well in what is, I guess, just flat out a a terrible time. It always seems to be, you know, coinciding with the holidays now to be dealing with awful coronavirus innovations and variants, in this case, Omicron, in case someone's listening to this, you know, in 20 years, which somehow seems unlikely. But in any case, we won't sell ourselves too short. And yeah, I hope everyone's keeping safe. I hope everyone is able to find some positivity to work with in what can be dark times. I hope everyone's ready for a happy and joyous new year insofar as it's possible. So yeah, my way into Moby Dick, it's actually a return for me. I read this book over 10 years ago around the same time of year. And I think there's interesting about like coming back to something that you read or a movie that you associate with a particular time of year. And so coming back to it in early winter, like resonated and felt right. I'm not actually mostly reading it in the sort of normal analog way. I am listening to a really nice podcast reading that it itself is about 10 years old from this uh, this podcast put up by USF. I guess that's University of Southern Florida. I'm not actually positive. They're Lit to Go USF series. This one's read by Rick Kistner, who whose voice reminds me of an old teacher. So it's a sort of, I don't know, there's, there's layers, I guess. But yeah, I've been listening to that. Sometimes I find like 19th or 18th century novels like really really pleasant to fall asleep to, which is, I'm sure, a big selling point for for many people with with podcasts, though maybe not a huge selling point on how interesting this podcast is going to be since I just said I'm using the source material is what I fall asleep to. But I've consumed a lot of this podcast version of Moby Dick because I was doing a lot of driving and I was listening as I drove and I got through a good chunk of Moby Dick as I crossed the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, listening to to this uh, Rick Kistner version of of the of the novel, novel is from 1851, written by Herman Melville, whose prose 
whose career writing prose like kind of fell off a cliff not too long after Moby Dick. Melville's patrician family loses its fortune around the start or like the height of the Industrial Revolution. Because of his family's economic situation, Melville was obliged to work a variety of, of jobs that were not the original path of a gentleman. He was in and out of school. He seemed to have been at first a middling student, but possessed a great love of learning. And there are all these classical allusions that sort of were sprinkled across his, his prose and poetry. So one of the jobs that he ended up working was as a sailor and eventually as a sailor on whaling expeditions. These experiences helped provide Melville with the material for his early novels. And he also supplemented his own experiences and his own ideas about a life at sea with various other travel logs and other accounts that he cites and catalogs and criticizes throughout various chapters of Moby Dick. His family is Dutch, like sort of New York Dutch, and he grew up steeped in a Dutch Calvinist reading of the Bible. And so the Bible is ready at the tip of his fingers throughout this novel. Um, the main characters are named Ishmael and Ahab, who are both interesting characters from the Hebrew Bible. We'll, we'll start with Ishmael. Ishmael is the son that Abraham or Abram has with the slave Hagar, who then invites the jealousy of Abram's wife, Sarah. And when Sarah is able to bear a child for Abraham in like really extreme old age, Sarah makes sure that Ishmael is sort of pushed out of the inheritance and drives Hagar and Ishmael out of Abraham's um, sort of family unit. But they're preserved by God. And Ishmael is sort of construed as being kind of not rootless, but he's, he had this experience of being disowned by his father or being alienated from his father, of being cast out into the wilderness. And the character Ishmael, the, the novel famously starts with Call Me Ishmael. And this, this character kind of has, I would say, almost a comic tone or an ironic tone to a lot of his descriptions. He's narrating a lot of the book, though not sometimes the, the narration goes inside the voice or, or perspective of and characters like Ahab or other characters like Starbuck, who I'll get to later. But yeah, this sort of sense of being cast out, of being of a wandering person, a nomadic existence. Ishmael is trying to get on board a whaling ship so he can learn something about this this trade in spermaceti uh, oil that's being harvested in the great whale fisheries and sort of targeting sperm whale for, for this trade for, for heating products and, and light and, and sort of illumination um, in the household in, in the 19th century. Ahab is the other main character, the, the captain of the Pequod, a, a ship that, Melville or, or Ishmael says is named for a kind of a, a, um, a now wiped out native tribe from Massachusetts. Um, need to check up on that one. 
in terms of how you know the sort of myth of of native peoples being erased is erased from North America is always is is always used as a cover for ignoring their political existence today. Um, so that's something to to double check on. In any case, Ahab is named for a ninth century king of Israel, whose character is taken from the first book of Kings. And so Ahab is married to the Tyrian or Phoenician princess Jezebel. And together um, they import the Canaanite fertility cult around the god Baal. And so Ahab allegedly does more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He's sort of a heel. Like Ishmael, in many ways, sort of at odds with the dominant narrative being pushed by the Yahwehist divinity of the Hebrew Bible. He's, you know, he's married to a foreign princess, just as like Ishmael's mother is not of the same Hebrew lineage. And he, you know, we don't really get much mention of Ishmael's religious practices. Ahab is embracing these rival deities and is pitted against the prophet Elijah, who makes a mockery of the cult of Baal um, through this interesting scene where fire destroy, like fire comes down from heaven, and destroys the altar that that Elijah erects as a way of testing the power of God, and the the priests of Baal are not unable to get anything to, to anything to spark. And then after Elijah's successful demonstration, are lynched by a mob incited by Elijah. And not so coincidentally, there's also an Elijah in the beginning of Moby Dick who tries to warn Ishmael and Queequeg away from signing up for Ahab's ship. The scholar Jonathan Cook points out that another interesting parallel between Ahab, the character, and Ahab, the character of the novel, and Ahab, the biblical character in 1 Kings, is that the biblical character has a trading post trading house erected out of ivory and the pequod is pieced together from these different whale bones and fragments of baleen it's sort of this almost frankenstein cadaverous assemblage that has been rigged together to help ahab pursue his vengeance against the white whale but it itself in being constructed out of ivory in in many places, mimics sort of stuck in a mimetic pattern of aggression with with the white whale. But that's just like another one of these details where Melville is using bits and pieces from the biblical narrative as a basis for choices and imagery that he deploys in the novel. So I found myself listening to Moby Dick as I was running the gauntlet of I-80 across the, the width of Pennsylvania. And it occurred to me, like there were some obvious continuities with the themes of the podcast. We just, as I mentioned, talked about the giant sea monster. 
But there's this meditation on evil, both natural and moral and metaphysical, like running throughout the novel, especially regarding the sort of the motivations and psychology of Ahab, but also in what the whale represents. And I just, I was, I was driving and trying to not get pulled over and drive safely. And all, you know, I was just like, all these things were clicking in my mind. And I'm like, I have to, I have to, I have to do a bonus for the, the most hardcore listeners on this. I think that the most hardcore people who need the bonus gift of extra podcasts would really appreciate unpacking this connection for, you know, sort of jumping out of our, our normal timeline of working laboriously (laughs) through late antiquity into the medieval period to jump into the mid 19th century and see how a lot of these themes are still being worked out and still being processed. I I, kind of think that studying the devil is almost like this master key to so much of Western Civ in terms of philosophy and theology and religion and literature and so I'm just, I'm trying to use that gift that studying the devil has given me as a way to make sense of even sort of these casual appreciations of pop culture and the canon as, as I sort of move through my, my daily life. In any case, I got back to New York and I wanted to do some research about the diabology and demonology, demonology of Moby Dick and found this uh, work by scholar Jonathan Cook. Let's get his his uh, info right here. His book, Jonathan A. Cook, Inscrutable Malice, Theodicy, Eschatology, and the Biblical Sources of Moby Dick from 2012. And that guides a lot of the way I unpacked this book to make sense for this podcast. Um. I saw a lot of what was there already. He helped me see some things I didn't quite pick up on. And one of those that I think is most interesting is that the consideration of the Leviathan, you know, in, in, the, in, the perp, in the being of the white whale, links Ahab's character to Job. And before I get really deep into that, just like a quick, a very quick plot summary and I'm sort of potting as I go. I'm not quite through the book, but I've, I've hit on a lot of the sort of major moments that, that deal with demonology. In any case, Ishmael is looking for a ship. He befriends Queequeg, who is a harpooner from the South Seas. And they end up on the Pequod, which is captained by Ahab. Moving very quickly. Uh, the book is a delight to listen to. There's there's all kinds of interesting vignettes and dives into the culture of sailing and into the whaling port towns around Nantucket and Cape Cod and, and Massachusetts and, and interesting religious and, and metaphysical meditations scattered throughout. Melville's really interested in religion. He's really interested in what the encounter with other cultures does to a kind of naive fideism and naive theism and that's worked out a lot in the novel but yeah they get on the board the pequod and ahab is out of sight for a while and it's a little bit ominous there's also like hints that there might be more 
people on the boat sort of stowed away who are being kept back in secret. And that creates a kind of ominous suspense throughout the first parts of the novel. And they get out to sea and Ahab tells the crew that they're going to try to hunt down this whale, Moby Dick, who bit off his leg. And that that's going to be their main occupation. And so this takes me back to the, the Job point. So Ahab, right, his namesake is from the Book of Kings, who's like the worst king ever from, from Israel, and really invites divine retribution and gets himself killed for not listening to God and so on and so forth. But Cook points out that a lot of Ahab's character not only corresponds to this wicked king, but also to the suffering of Job. That's what the sort of the Leviathan whale symbol sort of helps us key in on. And and Ahab has suffered a lot. He was named Ahab, which like all of these like sort of ultra biblically literate Quakers who populate Nantucket like see as a very strange thing to name someone. It's not a positive association. And so that's chalked up to his mother being mentally ill. But in any case, Ahab has suffered a lot. You know, his legs bit off. The book explains like this has kind of driven him insane. Like it's, 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 and what the, the, the term the book uses is monomaniacal. He is crazy, but he's able to function. This is, this is the idea that he's sort of locked on this one purpose. And the purpose is not, you know, calling it irrational isn't quite it, but it's, it's been, he's been, he's been demented or, or bent in some way. Being demon-pilled, though, I can't help but thinking of the theory of the fallen angels having their free wills taken away after they fall away from the presence of God and being locked in on their purpose, like these sort of self-destruct sequencing automatons. And that's a little bit of how Ahab comes off sometimes, too. But he suffered. He's in anguish. There, so he has a, a really interesting birthmark that marks his face and that some some sailors speculate would run the whole length of his body. He's missing a leg. And then he complains that the ivory peg leg that he uses instead has cut into his groin. And so he's also like dealing with these sort of like this castration thing that's happened too through this uh, maiming, but, and all, and the sort of the psychological trauma. So that's, that's sort of the background. And that's, that's about where I'm at. In, in the book. And that's 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 over 200 pages of <laughs> um, setup there. But this this comparison with with Job, I think, is really is really cool because it what it does is it shows how Melville is inviting us to think of evil characters in the same way that we think of like the, you know, what Gregory the Great said is like the, the greatest human being ever, you know, until Jesus and who stands in for Jesus, that characters like that can also be worthy of our respect and admiration and sympathy. I think that's like one sort of very basic thing that it does. It also shows that Job himself is kind of threatening to the theistic order. Job, while refusing to curse God, mounts this kind of legal defense of his innocence that calls into question the fundamental justice of the cosmos as administered by God. And so both characters are take on this sort of threatening posture vis-a-vis the divine. 
Another thing that brings bo- both Ahab and Job together is they're both tested by Satan's or evil spirits, or or at least troublesome spirits. In the case of Job, we're familiar with this by now, but it's also a evil spirit in First Kings that confuses Ahab about how he should proceed in warfare. And instead of standing firm against the seductions and tests of the Satan as Job does, Ahab is is tripped up. And and so that the parallel continues. You know, Ahab is in some ways like the more human <laughs> uh, case of where, you know, if you're being assailed by an evil spirit, right? And it's, it's, it's very likely that you could, you could falter. And I just wanted to read the biblical source for this. This is when Ahab's contemplating military action. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and go into his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So, right, I think this the parallel of being oppressed by these Satans, which I, I found in, in Cook's analysis, was really compelling. And it shows how Melville is creating a sense of ambiguity and in linking Ahab and Job together. Another thing that bringing Ahab and Job together does is brings us back to the question of God's relationship to the monsters. So at the end of Job, God is using Leviathan and Behemoth to demonstrate sublime awesomeness and power and to sort of chide or just terrify Job as Job pushes this sort of defensive case against the justice of the universe as if to say like who are you to ask me about anything like look at these monsters that I control and we look at the plot of Moby Dick and especially at chapter 41 where we really start to get into Ahab's understanding of his life's mission we get some interesting descriptions that call into question the discernibility of God and the Leviathan or make us think about how they relate together. So I'm going to read a portion of, of this chapter. The white whale swam before Ahab as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity which has been from the beginning to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe one half of the worlds, which the ancient Ophites of the East reverenced in their statue devil. Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them, but deliriously transferring its idea to the abhorred white whale, he pitted himself, all mutilated against it, all that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil to crazy Ahab were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down. 
And then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart shell upon it. The Ophites mentioned in the passage are, it's unclear whether they actually exist. They seem related to uh, different Gnostics, maybe Sethian Gnostics. And according to Irenaeus and Origen, they're a sect that worships the snake, the serpent from the Garden of Eden that brought knowledge of the evil demiurge to Adam and Eve. Um, and so Melville's saying that, that Ahab didn't, choose to worship the evil principle, the demons that sort of populate the world or the, the principle of antagonism against human beings, but declares war against it. And I wonder if the reference to the Ophites is a clue that Ahab's making a mistake, that the Ophites, Adam and Eve, get knowledge from the serpent, get knowledge from the monster, that this monster actually isn't the enemy. The enemy is the demiurge who created the whole system. So in that passage, the whale, the white whale, appears as demonic, satanic. Other passages call into question the dualism between God and the devil that you might sort of see there. Because as, as we recall from Job, it's God who, who runs the monsters. You recall from Augustine, it's, it's God who uses the devil and demonic temptations for providential ends. So in the novel, when Ahab's proposing his plan to his crew and sort of seducing them into allegiance to him, he gets some pushback from his first mate, Starbuck. And Starbuck's like vengeance on a dumb brute that simply smote thee from blindest instinct, madness, to be enraged with a dumb thing, Captain Ahab, seems blasphemous. And it's interesting that he says blasphemous, not just crazy, that there's something, some affront to divinity in seeking vengeance against some part of natural creation. This is what Ahab says. Hark ye yet again, the little lower layer. All visible objects man are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there, some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall, shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's naught beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. The inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate. And be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal, I will wreak that hate upon him. Talk not of, to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that then? Could I do the other? Since there is ever a sort of fair play herein, jealousy providing over all. But not my master man is even that fair play. Who's over me? Truth had no confines. So a lot going on. Ahab denies its blasphemy and sort of gets to the heart of the matter. He doesn't even deny its blasphemy. He's like, don't even talk to me about blasphemy. It doesn't matter to me whether this gigantic, and as we know now, intelligent mammal did this to me on purpose or whether this animal is working in some providential system and that I got caught up in that. There's an eye for an eye here. 
I don't care. I like this this whale, this giant monstrosity is just as he puts it, it's like a pasteboard or a mask. We need to even if it's just the outer appearance of the thing, we need to punch through it and get to the thing. Get to the thing that did this to me because someone did this to me. That seems to be the idea. And that someone, again going back to the blasphemy thing, seems to be a divine principle, a divine ruler of the cosmos. And and that connects to Ahab's question about the sun. Like, or it's not a question, he just says it, you know, I would strike the sun if it messed with me. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. And the sun sort of standing in for if we think about Platonic philosophy, like the good and divinity itself. In this last bit of the passage, he Ahab's talking about fair play. Even against even the sun or even God. Who's over me? He asked. Truth had no confines. And to me, this tips what really resonated as I was listening to this was Milton Satan. This sense of I am powerful, I'm intelligent, I am pissed, and I'm going to get what's coming for me. Like this is this is this is not a world for the meek of heart. This is a world for people who want to hit back when they've been harmed. theme I keep coming back to on this podcast is the theme of instrumentality and it it's really manifest here in Moby Dick and the way it's chiefly expressed is in discussing Ahab's madness his obsession with gaining revenge on Moby Dick it's in other places too like the passage I just read Ahab says he doesn't care if the whale is the principal or the agent of the power that's turned against him. Again, he doesn't care if the whale is the instrument or the wielder of the instrument. So that, again, this question of instrumentality is always tied up with questions of demonology and providence and who's in control, who's responsible. Are you responsible? Uh, These sorts of things. And when applied to the question of Ahab's sanity or lack thereof, Melville, sort of speaking through Ishmael, has a lot of reflections about how Ahab's competence and his soul and his intellect relate to this all-encompassing passion. At one part he writes, Human madness is oftentimes a cunning and most feline thing. When you think it fled, it may have become transformed into some still subtler form. Ahab's full lunacy subsided not, but deepeningly contracted like the unabated Hudson when that noble Northman flows narrowly but unfathomably through the highland gorge. But, as in his narrow-flowing monomania, not one jot of Ahab's broad madness had been left behind. So in that broad madness, not one jot of his great natural intellect had perished. 
that before living agent now became the living instrument, which is a way of saying that Ahab's ability to judge and make deliberations, rational or, or not rational, in this case, I think, I think presumed to be somewhat rational, his considerable intellect used to be the principle of his soul, of his being. Now it has become a faculty for the madness, the zeal for pursuing vengeance on the whale. In the chapter where Ahab is trying to figure out where he will most likely encounter Moby Dick again, the chapter on the charts, which is chapter, the chart rather, chapter 44, there's a great passage about how Ahab has to deal with no longer being fully in charge of himself. Often, when forced from his hammock by exhausting intolerably vivid dreams of the night, which, resuming his own intense thoughts throughout the day, carried them on amid a clashing of frenzies and whirled them round and round in his blazing brain till the very throbbing of his life spot became insufferable anguish. And when, as was sometimes the case, these spiritual throes in him heaved his being up from its base and a chasm seemed opening in him from which forked flames and lightning shot up and accursed fiends beckoned him to leap down among them. When this hell in himself yawned beneath him, a wild cry would be heard through the ship, and with glaring eyes, Ahab would burst from his stateroom as though escaping from a bed that was on fire. Yet these, perhaps, instead of being the unsuppressible symptoms of some latent weakness or fright at his own resolve, were but the plainest tokens of its intensity. For at such times, crazy Ahab, the scheming, unappeasedly steadfast hunter of the white whale, this Ahab had gone to his hammock, was not the agent that so caused him to burst from it in horror again. The latter was the eternal living principle or soul in him, and in sleep, being for the time dissociated from the characterizing mind, which at other times employed it for its outer vehicle or agent, it spontaneously sought escape from the scorching contiguity of the frantic thing, of which for the time it was no longer an integral. But as the mind does not exist unless lead with the soul, therefore it must have been that in Ahab's case, yielding up all his thoughts and fancies to his one supreme purpose, that purpose, by its own sheer inveteracy of will, forced itself against gods and devils into a kind of self-assumed independent being of its own. Nay, could grimly live and burn while the common vitality to which it was conjoined fled horror-stricken from the unbidden and unfathered birth. Therefore, the tormented spirit that glowed out of bodily eyes, when what seemed Ahab rushed from his room, was for the time but a vacated thing, a formless, somnambulistic being, a ray of living light, to be sure, but without an object to color, and therefore a blankness in itself. God help thee, old man, thy thoughts have created a creature in thee, and he whose intense thinking thus makes him a Prometheus, a vulture feeds upon that heart forever, that vulture, the very creature he creates. So, yeah, really hauntingly described there, the idea that Ahab's insane purpose is a creature of his thoughts and a creature that is now turned against him, for me, along with the Prometheus reference, really calls in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and, and Frankenstein's monster, the idea that something you create turns against you and you have this sort of, this 
aggressive or destructive relationship with. In this case, though, there isn't. It's not fully externalized. That's kind of what the the, the episodes of, of Ahab like rushing out of his room screaming it is like that urge to be separated from the purpose, it, but not being able to fully carry that off, and the sense of being possessed by a demon. That's another way of thinking about this instrumentality paradigm I keep coming back to that in Melville, it's Ahab's possession by this purpose. And that's interesting because Ahab talks of the white whale as if the white whale were the demon. But when Ishmael or Melville are, are describing Ahab's state of mind, it's the, it's that projection of the demonic onto the whale that is a device of the demonic itself that's taken over his innards and that has forced his talents and geniuses and soul and intellect into this unholy, self-destructive purpose. Travis is going to laugh at me for getting back into instrumentality again. It's, it's, it's a little bit too on brand, I suppose. But one last topic to wrap up this Ahab-obsessed bonus episode is Ahab's identity as as an antichrist figure. And of course, this is sort of like the, the genius of the novel. Uh, genius sounding a little overwrought as I say it. The real interesting things that are happening here where layering in Ahab the character of, of Job, the righteous suffering person, Ahab, the most wicked king in the history of Israel, and now... The Antichrist. We have Job's skin being afflicted, and Ahab having the the the, the birthmark and the the physical scarring. We have the mark of Cain as a famous mark, the mark of of the of the, of the fratricide, and of course, there's the mark of the beast, and this is what connects in some ways Ahab to to the Antichrist. The other way to think about it is when Ahab holds told Starbuck that he would he would strike the sun itself if it insulted him. The the Lex Talonis, the, the eye for an eye, is Ahab's governing principle or morality there. He's sort of the support of, of a of a considerable but also very fragile ego. And uh, Cook and others point out that this is this is the very exact opposite of the ethos of the Sermon on the Mount, which was, you know, to turn the other cheek in the face of violence and oppression. So that's a one way of setting up Ahab as Antichrist. I mean, there are other ways. So the end of the novel, the sort of culminating final battle, you, you get, you know, between Ahab and, and Moby Dick, doesn't go well for Ahab. But this, the anytime there's a final battle, there's an Armageddon scene. We're, we're sort of being pulled into the, the, meta-historical narrative, the, the sort of typology or periodization of history that we get in apocalyptic literature. And one way to think of, of Ahab as Antichrist is to look at the way he wants to take command and power over this Leviathan, the Leviathan that God has control over in Job, and to liquidate this thing at his own, at his own will, at his own command. It's to try to usurp the divine role in the eschatological denouement of history. And that's what makes Ahab 
a pseudo Christ or an antichrist in one way of sort of thinking about this this book. There is interestingly though, there's also the sense that like like Job, Ahab really has suffered, and that for Gregory the Great is part of what linked Job to Christ. And there's a really striking passage. I can sort of find it here, where Ahab's face is described as as having this look of crucifixion in his face and all the nameless regal overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. So he has the look of crucifixion in his face, that he has suffered in a way that seems to resonate with Christ's sacrificial victory on the cross. But there's also the, the link to Satan's face, the scars on, 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 on Ahab's face evoking Milton's vision of Satan. This is from Paradise Lost. But his face, deep scars of thunder had entrenched, and care sat on his faded cheeks, but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate pride, waiting revenge. So both Christ and the devil, not only Job and Ahab, but Christ and the devil are being molded into this character and into the, the, the passion of this character. But there are clues that even as there, you know, there may be some cause to Ahab's complaint that he is sort of an antichrist figure. And the, the scene that really brought this to my attention was when he's trying to seduce the crew into his revenge against Moby Dick. And the whole thing takes place on the rear deck of the Pequod. And it has the feel of a black mass because Ahab insists that the whole crew join in the communion cup of this, this, this glass of grog being passed around and everyone has to drink. And he's like, he's trying to, he's seeking and, and cook writes this, this fanatical devotion of his crew. Then there's like, an elaborately, I'm quoting here, an elaborately anti-Christian nature of the ceremony. So we talked about the grog as a communion cup. And this is, and, and there's sort of this crackling of demonic energy. Round with it round, short drafts, long swallows meant till as hot as Satan's hoof. So, so it goes round excellently. It spiralizes in ye, forks out at the serpent's snapping eye. Ahab instructs three mates to cross their lances so that he can charge them with his electrical energy by grasping the lances at their intersection, a galvanizing exercise that mocks the vivifying nature of the mass while it plays on the new thaumaturgical science of animal magnetism or mesmerism. So, yeah, there, he's like doing this crazy electrical light show as he is getting the crew amped up to... to pursue this crazy quest the other interesting thing in terms of the inversions of christian and especially protestant piety and ritual is that ahab's three mates are from new england are are nantucketers or cape cod people um starbucks stub and flask flask they are the officers on the board. But there's also the three harpooners who are the senior harpoon specialists, among whom is Queequeg. And all three of these harpooners are not Christians. Yes, yeah, so the three harpooners 
are Tashtigo, Dagu, and Queequeg. Tashtigo is from a native tribe, I believe in Martha's Vineyard. Dagu is black. He's from sub-Saharan Africa. And Queequeg, as we said, is from the South Seas. And so the three harpooners are granted this spot of preeminence. And their sort of connection to non-Christian or in sort of the parlance of the novel and everything else we've been reading, the pagan, is used to show their special bond to Ahab in his rejection of the divine order. And just to be Captain Obvious here for a second, the pagan in all the episodes we've done to this point has been associated with the demonic. And so the novel would seem to be in continuity with that Christian chauvinist bordering on white racist perspective. At the same time, the novel, especially in the voice of Ishmael, has been calling the Christian cosmos and metaphysics into question the entire time. So that would mean that this sort of ironclad connection between the pagan and the demonic ought to be taken with a large grain of salt. And it's unclear whether Ahab really thinks that these non-Christians should be seen as demonic or whether he just expects his crew to see them that way. If he thinks that the whale is the real demon, then how does allying himself with the demonic make any sense? If he's going for this monistic perspective where God controls demons as well as angels, then calling upon demons would also make little sense in a revenge scheme against the Almighty. So to me, that suggests a large dose of irony when Ahab makes this connection between the non-Christian, non-white members of the crew and the demonic. After this ritual, I'm quoting Cook, Ahab insists that his three Christian mates pay homage to his three pagan harpooners. And now, ye mates, I do appoint ye three cupbearers to my three pagan kinsmen there, you three most honorable gentlemen and noblemen, my valiant harpooners. Disdain the task? What? When the great Pope washes the feet of beggars using his tiara for ewer? Oh, my sweet cardinals, your own condescension, that shall bend ye to it. And the, there's like the mockery of Catholicism and the papal mass going on here in sort of the ironic reference to the mates as, as cardinals. Um, Cook writes, as satanic priests, Ahab desecrates the traditional meaning of communion by calling the harpoon sockets murderous chalices and then commands the crew to swear a formal oath of vengeance against the white whale. This is after the three mates offer the three harpooners drinks from the sockets of the upended harpoon irons. Like imagine the the sort of the steel part of the lance and the sort of cup part where it attaches to the wooden handle. And out of these, the there's there are drinks for the harpooners from the mates. It's sort of this strange ritual. But after that, there's a, a formal oath of vengeance and a chant, death to Moby Dick. So it's interesting, like the quest to kill a demonized whale involves a demonic inversion of Christian ritual itself. So yeah, reading, listening to the novel, it was just like so pumped up with satanic energy and links to the Job commentary and the monsters we were just talking about. I couldn't resist, and so I went for it. Thank you for indulging me. I may post again with more 
of my my sort of connections to the podcast with the novel as I go. We'll see. Um, not really committing to that, um, but it would be fun to. Thanks everyone for for downloading, listening, rating, reviewing, offering ritual sacrifices to white whales in their unending glory. And yeah, see you next time.